on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Welcome everyone to Cinematic Sound Radio. Eric Woods here, and I am uh, doing something that I'm not really comfortable with, but it's an idea that was uh, brought up to me by a friend who uh, mentioned that I should do a program, something along these lines, which is to just essentially ramble on, <laughs> chat, talk, not write anything down, maybe have a few things planned, but just chit-chat about film music, as if I would if I was talking to a group of friends. And maybe this would offer me a way of producing shows a little quicker, because I think as some of you know, and anybody that has produced podcasts and that actually script out their shows, that's quite a process. And for anyone that is familiar with this program and has been with the show uh, for the over the over the years, know that I am meticulous in my research, writing. I, I love to talk. I write a lot of words, and I just want to make sure that with the music that I am playing on the program, that I give you a reason to want to listen to the music that I. I'm going to play for you on the program. I mean, this is honestly, it's really easy to present to show, especially a, a sort of a radio program like this, or a, a show that is structured like a radio program, to just introduce a, an album, an artist, a track, and play the music, come back on, you know, repeat the same thing, and then just continue on with music. And, and s some people like that, honestly, they don't want to hear anybody talking. But I always felt that when I began this program, all the way back in 1996, that it was important that I gave you context. Uh, what movie, the track that I was going to play for you, came from, where it took place in the film, the significance of the piece, and maybe something a little bit interesting about it for you to pay attention to while you listened. This was never intended to be a show that you just kind of put on in the background and, and just had there while you did other things. I always felt it was something that you actually paid attention to and maybe learned something. But as I moved on, I've had a few people mention that one of the benefits of this show and something that they liked and they took away from the program was that it, the things that I was talking about had a point of view. It was my own point of view. I had personal stories to tell about each of the scores I was playing on the program, or at least I tried to. And I, I agree with that assessment because when I listen to other podcasts, I like to know, again, this just goes back to what I said earlier, I want to know why the host is playing or presenting a piece of music or why they've decided to talk about that particular subject. And I think the personal connection is super important. So with that out of the way, I, I'm just kind of winging it. And it's, uh, again, this is, this is actually quite uncomfortable for me. I've done it before. It's, it's weird to do this on your own. I've got a few things I do want to talk about today. And this is how I think I'm going to structure these type of programs. Again, this show does not have a name. So if anybody out there has a clever name for, for this program, I would greatly appreciate it. Send me a message at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. Or while listening to this program, um, maybe retweet it, um, make a suggestion on Twitter, Facebook, 
wherever. I'd like to hear what you think uh, this program should be called. So I've got a few things um, I want to talk about. And they're going to be in the range of re-recordings. I'm going to talk about the Matrix a bit. I'm going to talk about a, a topic that came up on a Zoom call that I was on last week uh, called uh, Films That I Haven't Seen But Scores That I Love. And that's an interesting topic because I have over 6,000 scores and I don't know how many of those. Uh, there's a lot of them uh, that I've only heard the score and I haven't seen the film. So that might be an interesting topic that I bring up each week on this program. But the first thing that came to my mind, and this again stems from a conversation I had on a on a film music Zoom call. By the way, this isn't like a private film music Zoom call. Um, if you go over to Film Score Monthly, uh, the message board, <laughs> you will find the link to that Zoom call. So if you want to jump in and and talk to fellow film music fans on it's on the weekend, but it's either on a Saturday or Sunday, jump on in. It is a great time. Anyway, we were talking about. John Barry's King Kong, and it, it's a score that I haven't played in a, in a really long time, and I I got to thinking whether I had, you know, a physical copy of it, and and I'm pretty sure it was released a few times, I think by Film Score Monthly. Anyway, over to my left-hand side here in the studio, I have my, well, at least half of my CDs on display, and there is actually a section that I've sectioned off uh, for Film Score Monthly CDs. And don't ask why they're the only label. Well, okay, I'll tell you. The reason is that back when Filmscore Monthly and Lucas Kendall started releasing CDs, I contacted him and said, hey, uh, I see you're releasing uh, film music. Um, I would love to play your stuff on the program. Uh, are you interested in sending CDs my way? And so he said yes, but on one condition that I would uh, buy a subscription to Filmscore Monthly, which I didn't have up to that time. And I'm trying to think of when Filmscore Monthly started releasing their silver and golden age CDs for the first time. And by looking at their website, I know they had the retrograde label, which I don't think was a limited edition label. I think retrograde was... Um, something it was, was definitely something separate, but volume one, number one was actually Stagecoach the Loner by Jerry Goldsmith. So that was released in 1998. Yes. Uh, May of, of 1998. And so from that point, 1998 till their final release, which was in 2013, I got everything that film score monthly released kindly sent to me by Lucas Kendall. And, and another thing that I promised to do was to present a show just dedicated to Filmscore Monthly CDs every two or three months. I can't remember. But I, I did that nonstop while Filmscore Monthly was still releasing CDs. Anyway, I, I wanted to look for King Kong back to the story, and I couldn't find it, which is weird. By the way, I was just interrupted by my daughter. You know what I need? And I think that once I launched the Patreon, and I'm, I'm sorry, this is just a, a personal thing that I'm, I'm going to need outside this office. And I'm, I'm going to purchase one of these things with, with Patreon money. And I thank you. Anybody that's going to sign up for the Patreon when that goes live, I thank you very much for helping me get one of these things. I'm getting an on-air light sign outside my door. So I'm going to flick that thing on. It's going to be blasting red light out in the hallway and nobody's going to come bother me. These things, I've got to be in the zone when I'm doing these things. Just, you know, they have, nobody's been bugging me all day. I've been watching football and hockey and I decided that I was going to start recording and all of a sudden everybody decides to show up. Everybody needs dad at midnight on a Sunday morning. <laughs> anyway, 
back to Film Score Monthly and why I brought this up and why I keep talking about this. And I think that Film Score fans, I mean, it doesn't matter the size of your collection, they understand what's going on. I couldn't find King Kong, couldn't find it, even though I had Film Score Monthly discs all in their own section of my shelf. They, they take up, a, well, they're not all in one section because some of them are are uh, uh, sectioned off with composers, but there's a good chunk of them that's uh, that are off on their own. Again, don't ask why. And so I checked my John Barry section, couldn't find it. And then I checked Film Score Monthly section, and I couldn't find it. It was there. Um, and I only found it after I went through and I decided that I needed to organize the CDs and I did it alphabetically. And you know what's funny? It's it, this is just this is just a thing for me, and it's it's not going to benefit anybody else in this world. But I, I spent you know, half an hour just sitting there, maybe longer, because I was looking through liner notes and and just checking out CDs that I hadn't played for a really long time. I haven't even looked at for a long time, and I was just kind of going through the liner notes and the wealth of the information that's in there, and forgot I had some of these scores. And, and I, I just like being organized and it's funny that I went through that process and the next day I jump on YouTube and I have uh, the Howard Stern show subscribed. I'm subscribed to Howard Stern show on YouTube and they had clips and uh, Howard Stern is making fun of, of Baba Booey. You know, if anybody's familiar with uh, Howard Stern, uh, Gary Delabante, uh, Howard Stern's producer who also goes by the nickname Baba Booey. He's a big vinyl collector. And so he actually spent an entire weekend in his record room, just organizing records by artists. Then I think it was chronologically and he was getting made fun of by Howard Stern constantly. And I felt that kind of weird. And I was like, oh my God, you know what? I sort of did the same thing. I mean, not to that extent, like ripping all the CDs down and, and putting them in the, the artist in, in chronological order. I mean, although a lot of them are, I know my John Williams ones are. Goldsmith, for some reasons, alphabetically, and James Horner is uh, chronological. And I just felt weird that somebody, somebody was just making fun of him for, for having a hobby and, and trying to keep a collection organized. And then you're just kind of thinking about, well, who am I organizing this for? Why am I organizing it? But you're basically doing it for yourself. So who cares what anybody else thinks? You know, I, yes, I spent a half an hour going through my film score monthly CDs and organizing them so that, again, if somebody asks where or, or talks about John Barry's game King Kong, I can easily find it now <laughs> instead of taking a half an hour to an hour reorganizing CDs and trying to find it. Anyway, crazy story. And um, that's the first one I have to share for you. And since we're talking about John Barry's King Kong, uh, let's play a couple of tracks from that album released on Film Score Monthly. Thank you. 
John Barry's King Kong, released by Film Score Monthly. Interesting to note, King Kong uh, released twice by Film Score Monthly. First was the uh, original LP presentation, a very short 42-minute album. And then, well, that was back in 2005, and then one of the last releases of uh, Film Score Monthly's, in, in Film Score Monthly's catalog is King Kong, the Deluxe Edition, two-CD set that uh, has over 140 minutes of music on it. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, and you're listening to The Flagship Show with Eric Woods. Okay, next... Let's talk about a film that I watched recently. I watched this either last week or the week before, and it had been years, decades since I first saw it. I'm pretty sure memory serves me correctly that I saw this on television, commercials and all, 4x3, paint and scan. And I might not have got through it all because there's, there's a lot that I don't remember. But now that I've seen the film, yeah, I'm kind of glad that I, I revisited it. And it is from Franklin J. Schaffner's 1970 Academy Award-winning classic, Patton, with original score by Jerry Goldsmith. The opening scene, and I'm pretty sure all of you are familiar with it, is one of the most striking images I think I've ever seen in in film with that bright American flag. And then a, a tiny little General Patton comes stepping up on stage. There's a couple of close-up shots of various medals and close-ups of Patton's face, and then he gets into the the classic speech, one that I'm sure is played in countless sports locker rooms to get teams fired up for a, for a playoff game. And it is a, a glorious film to see in widescreen, and it's the first time I've ever seen it in widescreen. I've seen clips here and there, but to, to see the whole thing... And just to see the just the gorgeous real photography, uh, the the way that they framed widescreen productions back then, it was it, it was truly an art. It's I think something that has kind of gone the way of the dodo, like true widescreen framing that has an impact. It's lost in modern cinema, in my opinion. And everything in this film, to me, just looked real. Like the opening battle is stunning to watch. There's a great shot that is from behind Patton as he's looking onto the battlefield as the German tanks and sh- soldiers are are storming his way. And we've got German bombers, real German bombers. We get allied aircraft coming in as support. And it's, it's all happening all in this one frame. Explosions, gunfire. We really don't realize how good we had it. I mean, like, look, I'm, I'm not a anti-CGI person, but there is nothing like seeing the real thing filmed and to see real airplanes and the way that they framed it and staged it, the craft of the art. There's nothing uh, that CGI can do that can replace anything like that. To get into the score, the classic score by Jerry Goldsmith, and he only wrote about a half an hour of music. And what I found remarkable was that at the beginning of the movie, and for about an hour, it felt like there was a lot of score. 
And then it basically goes away for the second hour and then comes back super strong during the final hour. And when that happens, at the end of it, I'm like, man, that felt like it was at least an hour of music that had to have been written. But in reality, there's only 30 some odd minutes, which is incredible. I mean, it's one of the probably the best spotted film score of all time. Every single time a piece of music appears, the impact is incredible. And I forgot how subdued it is uh, for most of the time, except for once we get into that last hour, it really kind of picks up and that patent march really, really lets loose, especially after the, um, the entract, which is brilliant. And I knew about Patton. I knew about the score. I knew about the triplets, but didn't own the album uh, until I found the Berez Serb and re-recording, which was done in 1997. And I think it was in and around that time, maybe a year later, that I actually found the album. And I had no idea about the history of the release of Patton or the various recordings of it. When I saw this, I thought it was something special. I mean, I had, I was probably a couple of years into my radio show at that point. Didn't have a lot of CDs, but when I looked at this, this is one that really jumped out at me and went, oh my God, I have, I've heard of this. This is a classic. This is a Jerry Goldsmith classic. And I got it in my hand and I can buy this and take it home with me and enjoy it, which I thought was quite, quite, quite special. I don't know why. But I just remember that moment. And I remember even taking it home and, and, and playing it for the first time and just being blown away by it. It went beyond my expectations. And then years later, of course, uh, it was re-released through various labels. Um, I think the Trotter Records released a... They presented a... I think it was a two-CD set that offered, I think, the original soundtrack that was first released. And then the... Um, and then there was another recording, I think. Um, I can't remember how, how it went, so I'm sure somebody's going to have to remind me. I'm looking, oh, actually, I'm looking, looking at it and try to right now. CD1 was the original motion picture soundtrack. And then the CD2 was the original 1970 score album. So two different presentations across two CDs. And it's been a while since I've uh, listened to that, but it, it is very good. But the first time I really experienced it on its own was this re-recording and over the years, you know, people have complained about the, the recording itself being quite distant. And that was, but it's the way that the Verez Serban um, series of recordings, most of them sounded very concert hall. Um, just the, the, the big booming sound enveloped you of the, the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Not a lot of tight, close miking. And the mixes were, the di- were incredibly dynamic. I mean, the quiets were quiets and the louds were louds. And, and that's like this on this album. Like when this album starts and you're hearing those, those triplets, which are not played on an echoplex, they're played acoustically um, on this recording. And, and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra's trumpet players are, are doing their best to, to mimic that echoplex uh, type of uh, recording. Um, they're super quiet. But then once everything kicks in, um, especially when you're hearing uh, the big bass drum, which is adding that extra oomph to this recording, um, it gets kind of big. I'm going to play you a couple of tracks that are going to uh, demonstrate what I'm talking about. But take this journey with me because, I mean, if you haven't heard Patton before, this might be interesting. Again, it just feels, it's it's much fuller for sure. And another thing I'm going to get out of the way before we get into this is there's this thought amongst some film music fans that 
you know, re-recordings are crap. And the only definitive release or presentation of the score is the original soundtrack recording. And there are, yes, there are times where the original soundtrack recording is, is the best presentation. But what I don't understand is that out of all the genres of music out there, I don't know why it is that we film music fans feel that film music can't be re-recorded. It can't be presented on multiple albums by multiple orchestras, by multiple conductors. I think it's fascinating to hear numerous presentations and numerous variations on a score. One conductor will take something slower. One conductor will take something faster. One recording is going to sound incredible because they have a world-class recording engineer. And I, I, I appreciate those things. They're not all perfect. Not all re-recordings are perfect. There are some real bad ones out there. Heck, there are some compilations that I bought very early on in my film music collecting days that I would pick up just because I, you know, it had a recording of something I didn't own. I mean, if anybody's picked up an Orlando Pops or a, a film music album, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's really bad. Um, so I guess this Patton album, which actually is coupled with um, a suite from Tora, 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 I guess it's a nostalgia thing for me, but I really do like it. I played it again recently, and I've listened to the original soundtrack recording, and I always return to the re-recording. Is it better than the original soundtrack recording? I don't think so, but I really do like the sound of this. Uh, I like the fuller sound, and so that's why I keep returning to it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy selections from uh, this album. This is one of my one of my earliest film score purchasing memories that basically really blew me away. It's Patton by Jerry Goldsmith conducting the Royal Scottish National Orchestra.
Music from Patton from an album called Goldsmith Conducts Goldsmith, where he conducts Patton and a suite from Tora Tora Tora, recorded by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. There's also a track here. You know what? I'm going to play it anyway. Uh, the main title from Tora Tora Tora, and this is the first time I had heard music from Tora Tora Tora. And I've read also online that uh, a lot of Goldsmith purists, and correct me if I'm wrong, really hate this. And I listened to both this version of the main title and the original soundtrack of the main title. And of course, yes, I can hear the differences. The, the, the recording techniques are very different. The original Tora 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 recording is very tight. The ethnic instrumentation comes through clearly. It is a, definitely a tighter, more narrow recording into the stereo field. What this main title does, it really expands the piece and, and just kind of turns into this big symphonic wonder. And, and and one thing that absolutely blows my mind is kind of near the two-minute part where Goldsmith is really letting those French horns rip. They come across much better on this recording, in my opinion, than they do on the original soundtrack recording. I just absolutely love, love the French horns and the recording that Jonathan Allen did for the main title to Tora Tora Tora. So let's play that piece for you right now. Again, Jerry Goldsmith conducting the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Thank you. 
So I don't know. Uh, it could just be me, but I, I, I love that version of the main title. And yes, it's very different. Tempo is very different. Uh, the conducting is very different, but it, it's its own thing and still has the spirit of the original recording in this recording. Lovely stuff. Bringing you the very best music for film, TV, and video games, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Okay, next topic. Do we want to talk about re-recording still? You know, we're going to, because this one really just irks me. Because this album, and I'm talking about RCA Victor's complete re-recording of Sergei Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky. I have many, many, many recordings of this classic score, and I heard great reviews of this recording. And when I played it for the first time, I was sincerely just knocked out. It blew my mind. I, I This, besides the one problem that I'm going to have, could be one of the greatest re-recordings of all time. It sounds that good. I, It's incredible. And to read about the painstaking process of restoring this score from what was essentially written for a, originally a very small orchestra when it was first recorded back in the 1930s. Uh, then it was expanded in the in the concert piece that uh, Prokofiev put together, a wonderful cantata, which I'm not sure how many other film scores out there have been presented this way and get performed regularly with symphony orchestras around the world. This might be the, the one of the rare ones. And so reading through the liner notes written by John Guberman, who was the executive producer on this project, they're talking about making sure that this sounds great. They're going to change the orchestration here because at one point uh, Prokofiev wanted an instrument to sound um, over-processed because it was being blared right into the back of the microphone and it would create a very distinct distorted sound. So they removed that and created something more musical. They wanted to make sure that everything was pitch perfect. There was nothing that was going to distract you from the enjoyment of you listening to this masterwork. So they, they made a few changes here and there. They made some interesting changes that directly changed even the orchestration just because they didn't like the sound of something. So, I mean, again, very meticulous about this recording. They even mentioned that the the original recording was so catastrophic because of the limits of the technology, and that included the crudeness of the sound effects and the dialogue editing in the picture, which this is going to come up a little bit later as to, to why this particular recording annoys me so much. And for the first, oh, I don't know, eight tracks, it's spectacular. And then you're about six minutes into track nine, and we're about to get into track 10, and we have just begun the Battle on the Ice. We've just presented six minutes of the Battle on the Ice. Everything is sounding incredible. This album is just rocking my world. And then what do they decide to do? and this happens only twice in this album, is they add sound effects of really shoddy-sounding battle sound effects. Again, I'm not sure whether it's from the film or where they got it. It just sounds really crappy. And these battle sounds last 5 to 10 seconds, and they're presented in between the April 5th, 1242 track and Flight for Russia in the Battle of Ice, and then again, they are presented uh, in between two more tracks in the Battle of the Ice. There are no other sound effects in the rest of the album. 
and I really have no idea what in the world the producers were thinking. Because, as I said, this recording, which is done by the St. Petersburg Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by the great Yuri Temerkanov, the painstaking score reconstruction done from the original soundtrack and from the, the actual score itself, done by William D. Braun, recorded in the Great Philharmonia Hall in St. Petersburg in March of 1993. Everything, except for maybe 0.5% of this recording is stellar. And that just, I, I don't know whether I am overreacting, but I did a best re-recordings of all time program, and I refused to put this on the list, and I refused to put it on any other list because of that enormous mistake that they made. It just ruins absolute and utter perfection. I, I'm dumbfounded by this. So what I'm going to play for you, I'm going to play for you two tracks that include the sound effects. Just, just I want you to hear it and then let me know whether I'm really blowing this out of proportion. Uh, I'm just going to play for you the, the first couple of cues from the, the brilliant Battle on the Ice from Sergei Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky, and again, brilliantly recorded by Tony Faulkner. I don't know who he is. He did a fantastic job, but for some reason, the producers decided to crap all over his recording with just two blundering errors. They're not even errors. They're just bad artistic choices. Anyway, it's a brilliant score. If you've heard it, great. If you haven't, I mean, it's, go it's hands down one of the greatest scores of all time, one of the greatest choral scores of all time. Anyway, let's get to the music. Battle on the Ice from Sergei Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky.
right. So tell me whether I'm losing my mind or not, but that those sound effects are just obnoxious. Want to hear sound effects? I'll go watch the movie. I want to hear dialogue. I'll go watch the movie. Stop putting this stuff over top of an album where we should just be enjoying the music, especially when I, and I know that there's one other recording and correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's only another recording where the, the score is uh, recorded in its complete form and it's fine. But I honestly think that this, this is the better recording, better performance. And it's just ruined, ruined by sound effects, bad sound effects too, really bad. And I can't even go. I tried, I, I tried to go in, erase them and it, it doesn't work because they bleed over top of the ends and beginnings of the tracks. Really disappointing. From Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, and you're listening to The Flagship Show with Eric Woods. Okay, we're back. Um, what's, what are we going to talk about now? All right, here we go. This is an interesting thing that was brought up a week ago on, uh, on the Zoom chat that we, we have weekly. There's about 16 to 18 of us. Sometimes it gets up to 20, I think. Most just chat, chat and film music for hours on end. It's fun. And again, it's this isn't a private thing. You can find the link on FilmScore Monthly. If you want to join us, please do. We'd love to hear your opinions on film music. It's a really fun bunch. So one of the topics came up, and uh, you know what? I didn't even get a chance to, uh, to, to offer my choice, which is fine. I'll do it right now. So this is films I haven't seen, but the scores that I love. And the first thing that popped in my mind was The Big Country. It's a 1958 Western directed by William Wyler. Stars Gregory Peck, Gene Simmons, and everyone's favorite, Charlton Heston. Kind of an inside joke uh, for that Zoom meeting. Folk who are listening to this program, I am no fan of Charlton Heston. He's been good in a few projects, but I just, I, I can't stand him. Anyway, maybe that's the reason why I haven't seen The Big Country yet. He's a kind of a big turnoff for me, but... Jerome Moross's score is sublime and might very well be my favorite Western score of all time. I'll have to think about that. I know I did a top, did I do a top 10 Westerns? Maybe I did. Maybe they were top 10 Western tracks. Maybe I'm lying. It's one of my favorite scores. One of my favorite scores, one of my favorite Western scores. And the first time I was introduced to the big country was on Silver Screen Records outstanding re-recording, right? Re-recordings again. I guess that's the, the, the theme of today's program. Uh, the Philharmonia Orchestra's re-recording of the score conducted by Tony Bremer. And I remember finding this album and putting it on. And up until we get to the, the kind of the dances and the waltzes in the middle of the album, for the first six tracks, I, I could not believe what I was listening to, especially one of my favorite cues of all time called The Welcoming. Just this jaunty, wonderful, lively, lyrical music, just beautifully recorded. And then I had a chance to hear La La Land Records release of the original soundtrack recording, and that was in mono, and I still appreciated just the greatness of the score. It sounded great. And then I'm pretty sure Quartet Records then came out with the uh, the album again. Again, wonderfully mixed, and I think uh, Chris Malone worked on that one, and uh, all of his stuff always sounds great. But it's the re-recording that I always go back to. I love the sound, the expansive sound. Again, this is another argument about which one's better, the re-recording or the original recording. And again, the, the original recording is a mono. I greatly enjoy 
uh, great mono soundtracks, but for me, the re-recording just, just makes it sound bigger and fuller. And so this is a classic score that I've heard countless times, but yet it's a film I haven't seen, and I'm going to fix that. This is one of those ones where I just want to know what the music is saying in context, and I really do hope that my appreciation of this score is uh, is is valid, that it is a great score and not just great music. And so I'll uh, I'll keep you up to date on when I finally see the movie and what I think of it and what I think about the score in context. But it's a great score. It's a great album. The, the re-recording is a, really a truly uh, great album. And again, that came from Silver Screen Records. And I think that came out in the mid-90s. And it just still sounds absolutely fantastic. So if you get your hands on it, uh, please do. Uh, you won't regret it. So here now, uh, we're going to play three tracks for you. Why not? Main title, Julie's House and The Welcoming. These first three tracks just blew my mind when I first heard this album. So I really hope you enjoy this.
And that's music from The Big Country with original score composed by Jerome Moross. And the re-recording was released on Silver Screen Records connected by Tony Bremner and performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra. Bringing you the very best music for film, TV and video games, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. So we're going to get off today's program with uh, some news that came out, and I posted this on Twitter. Again, it's not official news. Uh, I found this 
on Facebook, someone had found a a note on uh, one of the studio assistants for Johnny Klimek and Tom Tykwer saying that they're creating audio samples for Klimek and Tykwer during the production of Matrix 4 and uh, Babylon Berlin Season 4. Okay, so my first reaction was, who else had Johnny Klimek and Tom Tykwer as the score composers for The Matrix 4 in their Matrix composer poll? Now, as as I've gone on to think about it, um, you know, they, they did provide some material for, I think it was The Matrix Reloaded, but maybe they're doing the same thing here. Maybe the score composer, the actual score composer, hasn't been selected. But this is the first evidence that we have of composers actually working on this score. So I think everybody in the universe wanted Don Davis to come back. And I guess maybe it's a possibility, but the way that Don Davis and the Wachowskis ended things after the Matrix Revolutions, I don't think Don Davis is coming back, which is unfortunate because that's like doing, you know, the Skywalker Star Wars saga without John Williams. So then uh, I didn't have Klemek and Tykwer in my thoughts, although I should have because they've collaborated with Chowskis before. Cloud Atlas is is, is really good. Um, and uh, Klemek and Tykwer wrote one of my favorite scores of the past 20 years called Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. And if you haven't got a chance to listen to that one, I highly recommend you do. Really great stuff. I just never felt that they were composers that could come up with this sort of avant-garde, modernist, symphonic, writing the way that Don Davis did and, and the way that he really pushed film music forward in uh, 1999 with uh, an incredibly original, effective, uh, groundbreaking, brilliant score that, and three scores for that series that just got no love from his peers, which is unfortunate. The, the music branch, I don't know what they were thinking at that time because, I mean, I, I like the Lord of the Rings and I think everybody else likes Lord of the Rings, but the Matrix is just as good, and at points even better. And that those three scores didn't get a sniff from the Academy, which is just sad. Uh, anyway, I digress. So then someone mentioned, and I thought this interesting, but I didn't really think about it again till today. And, and, and the reason was is because this composer's music actually popped up on my iPod. I was kind of shuffling through um, my favorite um, tracks, um, a playlist that I have. It has about seven to 800 tracks. And someone said, uh, just kind of out of the blue, that the score composer should be Elliot Goldenthal. And now that I'm thinking of it, and after I heard this track that we're going to play for you, it's very short, but it's just, it's it's an incredible piece that, again, just demonstrates how freaking good Elliot Goldenthal is. But what a great choice he would be because of the way that he writes his music and is he could easily get into that Don Davis headspace, that kind of 20th century minimalist avant-garde writing. And the, so the, the track that I'm going to play for you comes from Demolition Man. And it's just this quick 90 second, not, it's not even 90 seconds. It's just under that, just a quick track called Action Guns Fun. And just tell me if this doesn't sound like the Matrix.
So yeah, you know, Elliot Goldenthal. I, I, I wish he was writing more. I wish he was, I wish he was still as prolific as he was earlier on in his career. Just a super fantastic composer. And I think he would be a, a fantastic choice for the matrix four if Don Davis isn't uh, brought on board or, you know, Michael Giacchino, of course, was in the, the, the other obvious su- suggestion since Giacchino has uh, worked with Wachowskis on a couple of projects, uh, Speed Racer, and then um, most recently Jupiter Ascending, where, in my opinion, uh, Giacchino wrote uh, arguably his best film score ever. It's fantastic. That's a great score. So how are we going to end today's program? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. This will be fun. Maybe I'll do it on the next uh Eric Woods rambles on about film music program. Let's check this out. I'm going to I'm going to iTunes right now and I'm going to select all my albums. I'm just going to close my eyes, give my mouse a bit of a scroll here and pick a track. And unfortunately, I landed on Gwen Stefani's Jingle Bells from A Bad Mom's Christmas. Guess what we're not playing on this program? Let's try it again. The Randomizer is at it. Ah, what the heck. Arkham Original Suite from Christopher Drake's Batman Arkham Origins in 2013. There you go. That's about as random as you're going to get. And that's how we're going to end off today's program. Okay, so uh, before we go, um, if you like this show, let me know. This is just a kind of a test pilot episode of me just rambling on and talking film music. And uh, if you like it, let me know. If you hate it, let me know. If you have ideas for the show, let me know. If you have a name for this show, let me know. I'm not sure whether this is going to be posted before or after I launch my Patreon, but I am going to I'm going to try to make a section of this show kind of a Patreon exclusive. Still not sure what I'm going to do, but we could discuss it uh, later on whether through email cinematic sound at yahoo.com or through Twitter, Sin sound radio, Facebook at cinematic sound, uh, check us out cinematic sound.net. And, uh, yeah, with that, I'm Eric Woods. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll be back next time to chat about four or five more topics just off the top of my head and play some great music as well. So until next time, take care and happy listening this again is arkham origin suite from batman arkham origins composed by christopher drake released in 2013 
you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>